We're back for another one. Two guys just trying to keep saying and talk a little baseball with no baseball games to watch. So I'm going to introduce Matt Hurst. He is the, the studs turtle of Fresno. The baseball writer was an SID and now just father of two trying to sort things out. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Love the stud circle reference. I read when I lived in Fresno, I read that book um, in my high school years. So, I mean, how apropos. Really appreciate you uh, you having me on. I'm, I'm doing great. It's great to connect with you. It's like, yeah, it's like the Bill the Bill Mahoney Trinity, right? Because I got, I had went already. I got you tonight. I got Hennessy later this week. So I'm going to go through the, the, the trio uh, quickly because you guys were all at Santa Barbara together, right? Steve and Scott were my very first bosses at the oh, uh, the campus the campus newspaper, and then um, yeah, the so Nexus, we're all right? the Nexus, the Daily Nexus, correct? Yeah, and uh, that's where I met those guys, and um, you know I've been been fairly close with them ever since, and and yeah, tremendous gauchos, as Steve Went would say. <laughs> um, so I was joking about it, but you were for 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 a good number of years. You were a baseball writer, and you covered minor league baseball, and then you covered the bigs for a little bit. With the Press Enterprise, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I spent four years uh, as the Angels beat writer for the Riverside Press Enterprise. And um, what a phenomenal experience for somebody that wanted to be involved in baseball somehow and, you know, realized after high school that maybe his DNA couldn't get him there on pure talent. So uh, was able to pivot and, and, you know, it was a great experience and and glad that I did it. And, um, you know, the Angels were they won three division titles in the four years I covered them. So, you know, very good teams and uh, a lot of, a lot of good memories I had, you know, in the press box and traveling around the country and watching baseball for a living. Uh, well, it brings us to the movie we're going to talk about is baseball classic. And I know you said it's your favorite movie, favorite sports movie for me, best baseball movie. It's either bull Durham or eight men out. It just depends on the kind of mood I'm in, which movie I decide is my favorite baseball movie. And so having rewatched it last week now, it's it's my favorite baseball movie right now. Bad News Bears is also in there in that little in that mix. Um, so that's what we're, we're going to talk about. And it's interesting that you bring up kind of your background with regard to baseball. Ron Shelton kind of similarly was a minor league prospect in the Orioles system back when the Orioles were winning. They was he was like there in the late 60s, early 70s. The Orioles, I think they were in three World Series in a row. They won in 1970, I believe, losing in 69 and 71. And so he. He played with a bunch of guys who were in the big leagues for a long time in the minors. He obviously didn't make it, but he got some big league love for the movie Bull Durham, which is on every list of great baseball movies. Yeah, and not only is it a, you know my favorite sports movie, I think you know Pressed. It's probably my all-time favorite movie, and not that you know I don't appreciate you know great cinema or things like that. Like it's just the rewatchability of it the comedy, there's drama, it's all the things that you want like in a movie and then it happens to be a sports movie and have some of that inside um, you know, chatter or knowledge of actual baseball versus like other sports movies where they think they know the game. But as you say, Ron Shelton played in the minors. He was very close to it. Uh, and, and it just, it, it's one of those that I can just watch any time of day, any evening and just absolutely love. So when you said, let's talk Paul Durham, I was like, all right, here we go. Um, what's interesting is I was reading a little bit about Ron Shelton coming up, and it was interesting. So this is kind of an offshoot of Ball Four, you know, the great the great uh, uh, book written by Bill Jim Bouton, and he just talked about the great moments in baseball having nothing to do with the field. And there was an article talking about, I guess Carl Yastrzemski and somebody were talking, 
and some reporters were trying to talk to, you know, trying to approach the, the, these two guys. And Shelton, who's a minor leaguer at spring training, kind of yelled at them that they're talking about, you know, blank. You can't say you can't say it in a family show, <laughs> but um, but it, it, I think that was interesting. And 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 you having you know covered sports and me, the the greatest. Uh, the, the the most of the, the greatest things that I experienced covering baseball have just not been involved with the game at all. Like sitting in the dugout and talking with Tony Gwynn, sitting in the dugout with Troy Percival, and having him sing along to Poison by BBD, uh, B, uh, you know, Bell Bib DeVoe that was playing over the PA. Like those are the little moments. So I kind of get what he was getting at is the right. great moments in baseball really have nothing to do with baseball. And I guess as a beat writer, you can probably you probably echo that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just the the amount of stories that come out of baseball is you're right. Like, you know, 10, 20 percent are about actual between the lines. The rest is because because the baseball season is so long. It starts in mid-February with spring training. And if you're with a good team, you know, speaking Major League Baseball, you can be playing into October. And that's months and months of being around the same, you know, largely the same group of guys and it's not like you just show up and they have the game or you just show up and it's batting practice in the game. Guys get there for like a seven o'clock game, you know, sometimes as early as noon. Right. And they had just and then they spend seven hours at the ballpark around, you know, maybe they're getting treatment, you know, staffers. They're working on something, watching film, you know, so on and so forth. There's so much, you know, quote unquote, downtime before the game is even played. It's like the game, the actual game on a game day is. I don't want to say it's secondary because that's why everyone's there, but it's you have so much other time when you're not playing the game. And then the fact that baseball, as great as it is, there is a lot of time in between, in between innings. If you're not, if if your team is batting, you're sitting on the dugout, you know, in the dugout. There's only one batter or maybe a couple base runners. There's a lot of time for chatter. There's idle time. And you put a bunch of, you know, late teenagers to 30-year-olds, so basically tw- in their 20s, Together, there's going to be a lot of ruckus. There's going to be a lot of, you know, uh, grab assery, if you will. Um, <laughs> and and sorry, it's a family show. I, I said that. Um, That's but okay. th- there's okay. just going to there's just going to be things like that that just create so much other stuff outside of the lines. And then you add in travel. You know, in the minors, in the low minor leagues, they're riding buses for hours at a time. And you put you know 30 guys, including coaches and trainers, on a bus. Of course, there's going to be, you know, shenanigans that are going on. So, yeah, the storytelling opportunities in baseball, you know, I, I think are, are far and away uh, larger or, or more intense than other uh, than other sports for those reasons. Now, getting to the film, obviously, uh, it's set in the in the minor league world, which I think is a great world that he chose. Obviously, he chose it because he knew it. But it was also something that wasn't particularly familiar, especially to mainstream crowds. And this is so the movie came out in 88 before minor league baseball was really a thing. You know, minor league baseball is a thing now. You got all these teams and all these kind of slick marketing things, the Star Wars nights and whatnot that have now migrated to the big leagues. You know, all these little promotional things that were done at the minor league level are all now done at the big league level. But so that's why I think he was really forward thinking, meaning Ron Shelton, in making this movie about minor league baseball. And it was kind of it was one of those happy accidents. He was able to write this script and direct this film because he'd been a minor league baseball player. But now here's this world that he's opened up to people like you and me. But, you know, I was a kid. We were both kids at the time watching yeah. this movie. 
And now minor league baseball is really a, like a big, kind of a big major business uh, in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a nod to it in the film around some of the gimmicks to get people there. They they drop a thousand dollars on the field from a helicopter. <laughs> the money is flying all over the place and kids are running to try to pick up a few bucks here and there. But but yeah, it that's what the, the minor league teams needed to do in the 80s and 90s to get people in the gate, you know, um, I, you know, I'm kind of making things up, but along those lines, like 10 cent beer night, which would turn out to be a disaster, but you'd get a bunch of people there or, you know, family Sunday and come on the field before or after the game, who cares, you know, just to get people in the door, because um, you're right. Like it, there wasn't a whole lot around minor league baseball at the time, except for people that really knew it or those towns or cities where the minor league team was really ingrained in the culture um, and, and they could just do anything or wanted to do anything to get people in. And I think maybe the the one of the the major league managers or, or sorry owners to to kind of take that on was with the White Sox with like disco demolition night and things Bill like Vack, that. Bill Vack, Bill Vack, yeah, yeah, that yeah. you would see like at a minor league park, but that's maybe you know the the only glimpse into it at the major league level. But but because there wasn't social media and you, and you know unless you're like reading about prospects like really deep, like you just you follow your team, you 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 follow the Orioles, you follow the Dodgers, you follow the Yankees, and so on and so forth. And the next guy that comes up or in spring training, you learn about the hot rookie, but you don't learn about the the rest of the 40 man roster, you know, and, and um, I, you're absolutely right. This movie shined a light on minor league baseball in a way that hadn't been done before. And it did it well and it was smart. And that's why it's still, you know, it, it's 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 timed. It's you know, you can look and be like, oh, that's, you know, it's how people dress in the 80s or their hair was in the 80s. But. It's still like timeless in terms of what it is and what it meant to sports movies and to the game of baseball. So the one of the first aspects is so we get an introduction. It's kind of a voiceover with Susan Sarandon. She plays Annie Savoy. And what the one point about this movie is it really launched Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins both kind of into the stratosphere. They've both done movies before, but this is both their first big hit. Kevin Costner was coming off the Untouchables and No Way Out. So this is kind of his first big movie as a bankable star. He was mm-hmm. a star in this movie. Um, so in the opening sequence, Annie Savoy talks about religion, the church of baseball, basically. And um, now you grew up listening to Vin Scully. You're a Dodger fan, so you grew up listening to Vin. And Vin, I think, definitely brings an ecumenical aspect to the way the game of baseball is presented from him. I didn't have Vin Scully when I was a kid. I watched Vin Scully on the World Series. But I, you know, it was Messer, White, and Rizzuto for the Yankees were the radio, was the radio crew. And they'd, they'd prickle in, you know, uh, sprinkle in like Billy Martin here and there and Bobby Mercer here and there. Uh, but I learned, it was, to me, it was like the, every baseball game was like the Feast of San Gennaro. Because you had Rizzuto talking about cannoli and sauce of sandwiches. <laughs> then you had, you know, Bill White with his southern homespun humor. But... Uh, uh, I, talk a little bit about that in the sense that there is kind of a religious aspect to how baseball is viewed by fans and also by the players. You have that insight having covered Major League Baseball. Yeah, there is. It's a good. It's a good um, point too around the the quote unquote religion of baseball, right? And I think Annie sets up the movie talking about that, but then throughout the movie we find out that she's just so conflicted that baseball is her religion. Right. She talks about despite most Judeo-Christian beliefs uh, that I you know, go against, I am monogamous through the season. Right. It's kind of funny, like the rules she creates around her own religion of baseball. Um, and, and yeah, when you talk about, 
the baseball religion as a baseball fan and growing up with Vin, like that's the summer soundtrack that I had. You know, I was fortunate along with a lot of Angelinos to to have that and, and to know just Vin's, you know, kind of um, uh, timing and his cadence and just to hear it. And really, as you get older, you appreciate it. But as a kid, you're like, yeah, that's just Vin, you know, talking about the Dodgers. Um, but there is a religion to that. And then Vin Scully kind of became as everything expanded, like Vin Scully became this religious type of figure, you know, within baseball, as I think, um, you know, he, he was on TV more often. Right. And, and people would stream it differently and, and watch baseball and watch Vin that way. Um, and then the movie does a good job, too. Uh, you know, aside from players now with their religious you know, beliefs, like the sign of the cross or something like that before they get into the into the box. But um, where where Crash, which Kevin Costner is walking down the line of players and they and they got Jose, the first baseman, and he's doing the chicken bone cross to take out the curse of his back. Like that's a whole different religion that totally plays into, you know, people bringing their own beliefs into this religion of baseball. And one guy's just begging for it. Like, come on, I'm over 18. Like, just just touch touch my bat with the chicken bone. And the guy's like, you don't believe that, you know, that that's that's desperation. And Costner, just because he's this this gravity of a player with this tradition and this belief and, you know, baseball is his life and his religion in a way, he just walks by and taps the bat and, the, you know, Jose blesses it with the chicken bone cross, you know, and it's it's those little ticks throughout the movie that really make make the nod to this um, kind of crazy. And then in another way, you talk about religion um, and you kind of have this trinity of of Nuke Lelouch and Annie Savoy and Crash Davis, um, you know, carrying this movie and, and that little love triangle as well going on. So, you know, yeah, you can, you can find all kinds of little religious uh, pieces throughout. And, and yeah, it is, it is weird. This, this religion or superstition sometimes that people have with, with baseball. Uh, let's go to, you mentioned the Trinity. So uh, Annie Nuke and Kevin Coster for mo- movie audiences to consume. It was a love triangle, right? So there's there's so many great lines. She picks the young, you know, the young fireballer Nuke Lelouch played by Tim Robbins, and she brings both, you know, Robbins and Crash to her place. And what's the line from I don't try out, you know? And yeah, and at this point in my life, Costner. I don't try out. Yeah. Yeah, he's out of there. So there's the, there's the love triangle, and I don't want to spoiler alert. It's a 30 year old movie, so obviously <laughs> she kind of she kind of romances. Uh, of nuke throughout the film and then obviously you know at the end she ends up with crash which i think is everybody kind of is okay with that because i think that people really thought those were the two that really belong together but it's really also a triangle with regard to mentorship because uh, uh tim robbins plays uh uh, uh, uh calvin ebby lelouch nuke lelouch the right-handed fireballer and so he's being mentored by crash davis the veteran catcher who they really bought up to get him to the big leagues but then annie is mentoring him in her own way, uh, you know, it's sometimes hilarious way uh, in, in a lot of various uh, manners. And then it's almost it's interesting because she has her own thoughts about baseball and so does Crash. And it's really different to see kind of her more professorial approach and 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 Crash, who kind of just leads from the gut with all his years of experience in, in the sport of baseball. Well, she is a part time teacher at the local junior college. Right. So that's. <laughs> Um, uh, what is it William Blake he teaches William, William Blake. Blake yeah yeah um, <laughs> English and composition is is I think the class um but yeah and, and that's where the conflict lies in is is you know 
Crash is upset that she chose this young, you know, out of control kid versus him, who he, even though they only met for a couple of hours at the bar, felt they were a little bit older. They had this, it just seemed like this connection. They both knew the game. They're sitting there with Max Patkin, the clown prince of baseball. So, so they recognize, you know, what the game is versus, you know, Nuke, who's just partying, right? He's the, Mm -hmm. he's the bonus baby, as Crash calls him at one point in the movie. Um, And so, he feels spurned by that, and his job, as you say, is to educate Nuke on the ins and outs of the games and to maximize his talent because, you know, he's one of those top top round prospects that they, you know, the, the team has put a lot of money into. To, they want to see him succeed. And you get an idea early in the movie that Annie is that without anyone really saying it, but when Nuke comes into the clubhouse the next day and he's just dog tired because Annie on that first night read him poetry all night to keep him awake. Mm-hmm. And Robert Wool, the pitching coach, finds out that Annie has chosen him for the season. He's like, oh, that's great. Like, you're going to have a good year. You know, like that, that Annie is this other teacher that exists for the Durham Bulls all year that, you know, because Crash is the player to be named later. He's brand new. But Annie is there year after year. Um, kind of mentoring these young kids in the minors, you know, in in her own way, both about baseball and probably giving them some tips that will carry them along in other, you know, aspects of their life. Yeah. I mean, she's kind of the hippy-dippy aspect of the mentorship, and Crash is kind of the real-world mentor. You know, and I just such it was such a defining role for Costner, and he seemed to slip right into it. And he obviously was a big baseball fan. The connection to Cal State Fullerton out of the Big West, and yeah. his friendship with Augie Garrido over the years was really interesting. But what I found interesting was you see early on that Andy is also she's the mentor for Millie as well. You see them in the ballpark, and Millie's got the radar gun, and they're sending you know they're sending um, notes down into the dugout of the Durham Bulls, and it's like. They're acknowledged like she's like you were mentioning. They know who she is and she's kind of working almost like a bird dog scout for this minor league baseball team. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 as she mentors Millie, like she's telling Millie that women aren't lured into the clubhouse. Because remember, you know, uh, the first time we meet Nuke, we, we see his his bear his bear behind uh, <laughs> as he's hooking up with Millie. Right. You know, minutes before his, his professional debut. Um, you know, so Millie's around and, and everyone kind of recognizes Millie as, you know, the, the younger version of Annie that's maybe not as uh, as tactful in her exploits with the players as, as Annie turns out to be. Um, and and yeah, so I think Annie, the same way that Crash does, relishes this role of being this teacher or this mentor to these younger folks and not only teaching them about their own successes, but trying to teach them about their failures as well, so they don't follow the same, the same ways. And and I think using the Millie example, you know, she kind of swings all the way the other way when she ends up marrying Jimmy, the ultra, you know, uh, Christian, um, you know, saint of the team. Where whereas Millie, you know, even asks like, should I be allowed to wear white on my wedding day? Right? Um, you know, so. There's all kinds of like little angles throughout the movie on, on these mentorship pieces. And, and the more you rewatch it, the more you kind of pick up on it. Yeah, I mean, there's parallels between Crash and Nuke and Annie and Millie. You know, like Nuke and Millie are both kind of the unbridled, you know, unbridled youth. Whereas uh, uh, Millie and Crash are a little more polished, a little more experienced, maybe a little more jaded 
Although I think Millie, uh, Annie hides it a little bit better than Crash does in terms of their, <laughs> yeah. their, their jadedness, right? Um, but yeah, that, that's one point of it. And that's a funny thing because I was talking to somebody. I was talking to a film school colleague of mine some, a couple weeks ago. And she, not a baseball fan at all, but loves the movie for the relationship stuff in it. You know, it's kind of a philosophical. We talk about baseball as religion. But it's just the philosophical take on the man-woman, the romantic relationships, too. They take a lot of the parallels from the game of baseball, which, you know, I think can be used as a metaphor for anything. And you and I, you know, both loving baseball, I'm sure in our regular day life, I use baseball metaphors all the time. Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, and, and in my in my corporate world now, like we talk about hitting a home run and like you just hope you people just know that what that means. Right. So it's. It's uh, the lexicon has really traveled as well um, throughout. And and obviously, um, you know, the way that this movie just sets up and plays plays out is done well, where you see the story arc, too, of that mentorship and and Crash, you know, gets it early on where he just he's like he's told he's the player that to be named later. He's in triple A. He's on the cusp of maybe getting back to the majors for one final cup of coffee and he's like, why am I down an A-ball? And they tell him, and he's like, forget it, I quit. And he's walking out the manager's door, and he just turns around, and he's like, who do we play tomorrow? Like, who cares who you play tomorrow? There's a game, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he's just drawn back to that, and he just accepts this role. And so, you know, he has those those moments with, with Nuke where he's just pissed off that he has all this talent and crashes piecing together this long-time minor league career for those 21 days in the show that he had. And he doesn't like that Nuke is kind of throwing his talent away just as a young, unbridled youth, as you say. So he teaches him, him about the interviews. He teaches him about how to sing the words right in a song. You know, he, he just kind of gives him the ins and outs to be successful as somebody that's been around the game for long enough to be the career minor league home run hitter. Right. I mean, that's, that's the interesting part of it is, you know, watching the movie, you go through it and you're like, wow, you know. I've been Nuke Lelouch at times, and I've been, you know, I've been Crash Davis at times, and it's really interesting. You go to the first game that we see, and it's interesting because I think the uh, the PA announcer uh, calls them the Peninsula White Sox, but they're wearing the uniform of the Hagerstown Suns, which is an affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles, which is what Ron Shelton played for, and we'll get to Ron Shelton in a minute in that first game. But so you brought a great point with regard to Crash Davis, and it just shows you. Um, some of the harshness of the game, because here's you know Nuke Lelouch, who's going to be a big prospect. He's got all the talent. Crash Davis isn't untalented, but for whatever reason, he hasn't you know he hasn't made the bigs for whatever reason. He hasn't stuck in the big leagues when we when we see the movie. And a big aspect to me of it is that yes, Crash is you know he's a 32 year old guy playing a ball. But he's such a professional, and you know it go. It feeds the mentorship story. But just beyond him being a mentor, exactly the scene that you quoted. He comes in. He's he's upset. Why am I an A ball? He's into the manager's office. He's gonna quit. And then it's hey, who are we playing tomorrow? Because that's what you do, right? Right. That's what you well, do. Even the manager, like you talk about, just the sage that that crashes. Even the manager asks him, hey, we're eight and sixteen. What do I do? And he's sitting there shaving. He's like, scare him. And that's the lollygagger scene, you know, where they throw right. the bats and gets everyone in the shower and kind of tries to turn the season around. Or, you know, um, he remembers even hitting a home run off Robert Wall, right, the, the, who's the pitching coach at this point. So he's still hanging on. I think, you know, having seen this movie so many times, that's one of the pieces 
that never quite fits in this. If, you, if you're going like, to kind of nitpick as great as this movie is, is that Crash Davis is this well-respected, at least in the minors, catcher, switch hitting catcher, you know, knows the game inside and out, loves the game, and has only been in the show for 21 days. Whereas you and I, as baseball fans, have seen plenty of catchers that hit in the, you know, below the Mendoza line that stick around for a while just based on, you know, kind of the glue aspect that a catcher plays to a team. So, um, but I get it. Why? Because he's been there long enough where he can talk about it and is viewed as this, you know, more than just this guy that the organization wants around. Like now the players respect him as not just this old guy who's playing. Like, you know, he tells them on the bus, I've been in the show and everyone's just stops what they're doing. You know, what's it like? You've been to the show. They're just impressed immediately. So it has that, that gravitas to it. So you can see why maybe Ron wrote it that way or, or played out that way. But when you see crash play and know he's, you know, again, it's a ball, but a, a switch hitting catcher with power um, who calls a pretty good game. Uh, you, you wonder why it didn't stick. Uh, you know, the Astros sign stealing has been a big story the last six months or so since the world series. And we go back to Boulder. Two of the best scenes are, when he tells the hitter what's coming. So it plays into, you know, there's no banging of garbage cans in this one. He's just the catcher's flat out telling him, you know, he's shaking me off. Can you believe it? I'm, I'm he's throwing a two-hitter and he's shaking me off, you know? Um, right. So those are some of the little interplays. And then even he, then, he, he mentors the guy who hits the home run. He's like, right. I give you a gift and you hit a home run. You, you show my pitcher up, run, dummy. You know, yeah. he's helping even all these other young guys figure it yeah. out. Yeah, and that's just that. That's it's a code. There is a code yeah. to the way he. There's not. There's no. I mean, there's a rhyme and a reason to everything that he does and everything he teaches. Uh, Nuke, you know, it goes back to the fight at the end of the movie when Nuke gets the call to the show. He he eggs him into a fight at the, in the bar. They're in a fight, yeah. and he, he breaks the mirror, and uh, he gets hit. He gets punched in the face, and he goes down. And then Nuke's apologetic. He's like, "Oh man, I, I you know, I didn't want to do that, but you egged me." And then what hand you hit me with, you know, yeah. when you get a, when you get a, when you get in a fight with a drunk at the bar, you don't use your pitching hand. It's like, it's another lesson. As he's and then he goes, the I can't league. keep giving you these free lessons. <laughs> Even when he's drunk as a skunk and he's trying to, he's all upset. You're absolutely right. And he's trying to talk to nuke about 25 extra hits and 500 at bats is, you know, 50 points. And that's the difference between a 250 and a 300 wow. hitter. When you get all these little bleeders and he's just trying to, he's trying to say why some guys, in your stick and some don't because of this, you know, this luck or these baseball gods that you kind of have to respect going back to your religion point, you know, around these superstitions around baseball guys and, and nuke still doesn't get it. So, um, you know, up until the bitter end, he's, he's trying to, uh, he's trying to teach him, you know, even when he shows up the next morning, probably hung over as all get out and with a black eye and still trying to, you know, wish him luck. Well, and again, this is many years before analytics came in. I love the scene you brought up is perfect. The idea that over a six-month season, it's one hit a week that separates a 250 hitter from a 300 hitter. And a 250 hitter is kind of a knockaround guy in the big leagues. A 300 hitter is a Hall of Famer. Right, exactly. The, the 250 hitter now, to put it in into analytics, is, is, the, is the war guy, right? He's the zero right. war. He's the replacement player. And the 300 guy is the, the wins above that guy. Um, you know, it, it'd be funny now if that movie was made now, how much analytics would be a part of it, you know, when, when trying to talk about it and, 
you know, Nuke is probably portrayed a lot differently. You know, now that, you know, he just, he throws hard, right? He, he throws 100 miles an hour. And, and back then, those guys were not a dime a dozen as, as they seem to be now. Um, and, and what it is, is they're putting this investment in him. And, and he's just this young, goofy kid, probably around 21 or so. And, and nowadays, you know, those kids are coddled. So it's maybe that first step of, of crash mentoring him. But now those kids come up through, you know, travel ball and, um, you know, with, with all these specialized coaches and they get millions of dollars just for signing their name, you know, when they're drafted. And then the organization puts all the support around them. It would be interesting if that movie was made. Now it'd probably be super boring because you wouldn't have Nuke Lelouch swinging around the bar drunk, dancing with everybody, picking a fight with, with, you know, Kevin Costner, both at the beginning of the movie and then punching him at the end, right? He would just be so protected um, throughout. And, and, and that's both what Annie and Crash are trying to do. Um, but nowadays it would be, you know, they'd have a whole separate team of handlers for him. All right. You, you were a baseball writer and you voted for MVP a couple times. I'm going to take you through the gospel of Crash Davis. Can you give me give me some feedback, maybe some yeah. anecdotes you could throw in there. Okay, I'm going to clean this up a little bit. Never mess with a winning streak. Right. Never mess with a winning streak. I mean, that's so big. Every baseball book you read, you hear a funky story about some player had some weird practice that they couldn't not do while the team is going good. How true is that from your experience? You know, I don't I don't have anything that like sticks out definitively from my time um, as a as a baseball writer, uh, you know, about a guy who did certain things like I, I remember, you know, Darren Erstad would wear, you know, he's a former football guy from Nebraska, but he would wear like one of those football like cut shirts like right at your midriff. He would wear that under his uniform, whereas most guys just wear like a T-shirt or, you know, something like that. Um, which I just thought was weird. So he, that was his thing. And he would, before every game, he would, you know, those gel packs that marathon runners have, he would have two of those and he'd have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but one piece of bread, you know, half peanut butter, half jelly, like slapped it, slapped together. Um, and that's just something that sticks out. Cause you see a guy in his routine winning streak or not. That's just his thing. The same way that Wade Boggs ate fried chicken supposedly before <laughs> or after every game. Right. That's just yeah. a thing. I, you know, during that time, I don't necessarily remember, you know, a pitcher on a hot streak and, you know, doing a story about how he hasn't changed it, you know, hasn't washed his underwear in, in three weeks or whatever. Right. I don't remember anything like that popping out. Um, but you see guys in their routine and their little superstitions around winning streak or or what they have done that's successful and they keep doing it. You know, uh, the way that they come onto the mound is a reliever. Right. They might approach it the same way every time they might kick the dirt the same way every time guys in the batter's box doing their same routine. Um, you know, when I talk about Erstad and kind of what he had um, in the lead up to the game, it was just kind of his, his own routine. Um, you know, but I, I remember, uh, for instance, you know, Sean Figgins uh, had, went on this incredible tear for about two months where he was probably hitting, you know, above 400 for, for a solid two months and just unbelievable tear. And I remember he went six for six or something, one game in St. Louis. And he just, he wouldn't crack no matter how much we asked him, how much we talked to him about it. He never cracked on what changed in his approach or if he was, you know, if he had an Annie Savoy or not, or, you know, he was eating the same meal, you know, or whatever. 
we never got that out of him. Um, and so I, I, you know, as I'm talking about it, uh, that comes to mind, but I don't, I don't recall anything specific about messing with a winning streak that came out in my reporting or, or in talking to those guys. Um, I will say though, that, that on the other end, Mike Sosha, who always had trouble managing his weight as, as the, you know, as the manager, if the angels got into like maybe a dip, you, you, You'd see Sosha a little bit larger than normal sometimes, maybe some stress eating. Um, but yeah, there was nothing that that jumped out around uh, anything specific to a guy saying, "Well, I, you know, I'm wearing the same pants every single day" or something like that. I had a college pitcher. Um, he'd been sick. He had a flu or something like that. This is years ago at UCR. Does Dustin Emmons was his name, and Dustin was a little bit of a character. So he'd gone to the doctor and he was really, really dehydrated. So the doctor gave him Pedialyte, you know, yeah. when he was ill. And so when he would get on it, when he, and he, he, you know, he would have to drink the Pedialyte to kind of stay hydrated. And he kept drinking it until he finally got to come back. And the first game he comes back, they bring him out of the bullpen and he throws six scoreless endings out of the bullpen. <laughs> so they put him in the starting rotation. And before every game, he had a little bottle of Pedialyte that he would just, he would take down, um, you know, until... Things it was his thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, it was, right. You know, he was recovering. It was something that helped him recover from the flu, but he pitched well using it. So he, he incorporated it into his game day routine. I, I, it's interesting that I, I – same thing as you. I don't have any many stories about that, but I do remember um, when I covered Eddie Orozco at UCR, and Eddie pitched in, yeah. the, in the Cubs chain, and he actually hurt his arm. If he hadn't hurt his arm, I do think he would have been on that 2016 team. He actually roomed with Chris Bryant. They roomed together in the – Oh, Bryant. yeah, okay. And um, Eddie told me, so his first two years, he really struggled. He was a big, big-time high school pitcher. I think he got drafted out of high school. Some major league team, like 20th or 30th round, drafted him. And he's a big six foot four, 215-pound kid. He threw 95. And, um, but the first two years, he couldn't get anybody out. Then he got hurt, and he couldn't pitch. So he comes back his junior year. And I think he had an ERA like two and a half, and he, he was he was just zinging the ball. And that was the year they changed the bat. So it was like, oh, it's it's the change of the bat. I said, no, 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 right. no. Change of the bat means you go from a five ERA to a four ERA. He went from a seven and a half seven and a half ERA to a two and a half ERA. And I asked him about it, and he talked all about the routine. He said, well, you know, when I couldn't actually pitch, I really focused on my running on Monday, my weights on Tuesday, my throwing on Wednesday. I really got dialed into all that stuff. And so then when I got back actually on the mound, it was real easy for me because my routine had already been established during this time I was in here. And right. so the routine came much, that much easier, you know, and then he was a junior. He was 20, 21 years old as opposed to being 18, 19 years old. And it just all kind of clicked and he ended up getting drafted by the Cubs. So that's another story that, that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I didn't cover this, but I heard it, you know, as a writer, um, just thinking about the topic, Jason Giambi, when he was with the A's, uh, when he was in a slump, he would wear a gold thong under his, his uniform <laughs> to feel sexy in the batter's box and try to break the, break the slump. Um, you know, and one, and one of the quotes with, from Giambi uh, that, that was relayed to me was, you know, I get in the box and I want to feel sexy. Not like sex, but sexy, you know? And yeah. it's just like, kind of just shows like baseball players will do anything and they don't really think through it as they do yeah. it sometimes. They, they just want to break out of that slump. But yeah, when, when we were talking earlier about all this downtime, I think routine, especially for pitchers, you know, starting pitchers that you only go once every five days or so, um, really keeps them 
engaged. Um, but then again, they have all that downtime when they're done lifting or running and they just kind of sit around and they can be goofballs. Uh, it brings me to a, to, a, we'll go back to earlier in the movie, the first confrontation between crash and nuke. Don't think it can only hurt the ball club. How about that? Right. Right. What, and, and I think here's another thing that, that maybe you, you recognize earlier, you know, the first time you watch the movie and you think it's okay, whatever. But then the more you respect and appreciate crash as the character, you know, he loves the game so much. He's walking around and he's got a baseball in his jacket pocket. And he says, here, hit, hit me with that. Like, <laughs> what guy walks around with a baseball in his pocket when he's out at a bar, right? You know, that, right, that right. just shows the, the grip that this game has on this character and what it means to him. Um, so, you know, yeah, don't think it can only hurt the ball club. Or here, hit me in the chest with this. And Nuke breaks the window. Well, he, he just, I know you're not going to, now you're thinking about it. Right, I know you're, you're in between your head. head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite lines from Crash, uh, moving on, is um, they're on the buses right before he tells them about the 21 days in the show. He says, you don't respect yourself. That's your problem. You don't respect the game. And that's my problem. And I, I, I just that quote just from the time I first saw the movie just really resonated with me about any anything you undertake, any kind of cultural approach you undertake. And I, I'm sure I've used that. Um, I, you know, with, with, with people and whatnot, I'm sure they've been annoyed or, you know, who does this guy think he is, but that just rang so true with whatever you do. And, you know, you and I have been in perfect, you know, like as, as, as a writer and as a broadcaster, you see these guys, young guys who really are talented, but are kind of flopping around and they don't quite get it. And you wonder, are they just, are they just morons or is somebody not explained to them? But that's not the way – I had, a, I had a, a, a summer league manager to ask me this a couple of years ago. He said, hey, do you know any broadcasters that would want to come out and live in you know, the middle of nowhere for a couple of months and do games? I said, oh, I, you know, I, I'm sure I'd give you some names, whatever, you know, young guy. Yeah. yeah. He's like, Our, the guy we have now is just not you – know, is, is, is not working out. I said, oh, is he not, a, is he not good? He's like, no, no, he's good, but – He's one of these guys that, you know, when the team lines up, he gets in line for like, – he didn't know the, the kind of the protocol of how to uh, – it was just annoying. The code, yeah. People, you know, and that's yeah. – you know, I thought that's exactly the thing that came to mind is, hey, respect the game at all times, and then obviously you need to respect yourself. But I, that that to me is one of the, the, the best parts of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's kind of the, the credo that Crash lives by. Um, but it also – you know, every sport – has a way of humbling even the greatest of players. And I don't know that there's a sport, you know, more than baseball that does that, you know, just for the fact that everyone talks about the cliche of, you know, you fail seven out of 10 times and you're extremely successful. Right. Um, but the, the way that, that you go about it and do it, the ins and outs, the intangibles, um, you know, around baseball, like the game can, the game can knock you on your, on your, on your wallet pretty quickly. Um, around that and you know that that's touched on earlier in the movie when the guy's 0 for 18 and then he gets released right or or crash knows at firsthand that he's been to the majors he knows what it's like and you know he's he's tasted it and he can't get back um you know and maybe that's his advice to himself you know from a younger year when he got to the majors and maybe didn't quite appreciate it as much at the time um and yeah it's 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 very easy um, well, not easy, but it's easier to make it to the majors once than it is to stick there, right, and, and create a, a career out of that. And you can say that about a lot of careers, right? 
uh, it's easy to be quickly successful in something, but but how do you make a legacy and how do you sustain? Yeah, yeah, no, sustain you're exactly. Right. And 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 you gotta you gotta respect. You know, I don't want to go Joel Embiid and get off top or off sport here and say respect the process, but you gotta respect you know the game. You gotta respect the the career path. You gotta respect the people that were there before you. Yeah. Well, that's basically that's, what he's saying. That's what he's that, saying. He, exactly. he's saying. He's saying trust the process. You know, 30 years before they were saying trust the process. Right. Um, uh, 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 I want to jump to so in that same scene. So the scene, the 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 quote that got on all the posters for Voldorum was his first monologue to Annie. I understand why. You know the you know sure. slow slow long wet kisses that last for three days. That was the one that was marketed. That was in the trailer. That was in all the posters you saw in the college dorm rooms. But to me, the monologue that mattered most to me, you've referenced it a couple of times, was the one about being in the show for 21 days. Because yeah. When you're when you're in in, a, in, a, in an industry like you know you and I were in where it's very aspirational you know where you're at aspiring to advance to a higher level that's what everything's all about because that's the experience right it's the what uh, Pat Riley talks about the innocent climb it's the climb to that level and Doug Smith who's the former head coach at UC Riverside had a line about big leaguers so you know they don't let bad players in that league. You're talking about the big leagues. Like you right. really gotta, even if you, you know, you get three at bats in the big leagues. That's three at bats more than anybody else. You know, it's a very small number of people that get those three at bats, and uh, that that just, you know, it, it, it's it's like to me, I, I put that up there with all the monologues from The Godfather and from Chinatown <laughs> and Casablanca. That to me is in the pantheon of film monologues. I don't know what you feel. Yeah, I mean. You're probably right because the one, the one to Annie about his beliefs, that's the one that gets all the play. Um, but well, particularly this one after JFK about, came out, yeah. Right. <laughs> but the one where he talks about, hey, you know, in batting practice, you hit batting practice with pearls, you never carry your bags, and all the women have long legs and brains, right? And he, he's he's reminiscing on how great the show is. Uh, now that he's seen both sides, he's been at the upper echelon and he's back, you know, riding a bus through who knows where. Right. Um, and, and he can appreciate it. And I think that there's something for any career really to be said about that is, you know, it, you know, you're a broadcaster. You, you, you've you've broadcasted in a lot of like really upper echelon areas. Right. At, at basketball tournaments. Right. The NCAA tournament, for example, they treat it differently than maybe a, a, a non-conference game in December. Right. And, but but you've been yeah. there and experienced it. So you can see that level and then you bring that level back to that non-conference game in December and you're at you're raising the bar throughout and across. And that's kind of what what maybe, you know, Crash could could do or hope to do with Nuke is raise the bar. And, and, and you know, you could say that about a lot of people that have, have tasted or, or been involved you know, in these these upper echelon areas, uh, you know, uh, of their careers, whether it's sports or not, um, to bring that back. And, and that's what that's what he's talking about. And that's what he's doing and giving those guys knowing that only one guy on that bus is making the majors and that's nuke, but giving them a taste of, of what it could be like. Uh, you know, I guess for you and I, so you because you went to the tournament with Santa Barbara once, right? Do you, you charter flight? That to me, Start, you know, started like flying, got the yeah. got the police escort, you know, all that right, kind of stuff. Right. Um, uh, and so the the last thing in terms of the gospel of crash to me was when he, you mentioned it before, he breaks the record, and uh, you know the home run minor league home run record. So in the course of the film, 
and he knows that he's coming up on the record, but he doesn't want anybody to know. And there's the joke about the sporting news. This is before the internet. So it's right. like, you know, you'd find that, that nugget you'd find in something like Baseball America or the sporting news. And, and, and my perspective on this has really changed. As a kid, when I first saw the movie, so Crash Davis, spoiler alert, he breaks the record. He breaks the much. So they have the, the tete-a-tete. He and Annie have the tete-a-tete. They decide that, you know, are we going to be together? They're not going to be together. Crash, obviously, after Newt gets called up to the big leagues, gets cut from the Bulls. So he decides to go and 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 go play for another team and break the record. And so it looks like they've parted ways. You know, there's two ships passing in the night, and it's over. He hits the home run, and all of a sudden he's back with Andy, you know. And, yeah. you know, when I remember, like, being 17 years old, like, wait a minute. What, what are you talking about? Why is he coming back, you know? And then as I get a little older, you understand that it's, you know – the character is such a pro that he decides that, you know, this is the best it can be. You know, he's the record all time home run record holder and he knows it's the best he can be. Nobody else knows, but he knows. And that's when it was time to hang it up. Yeah. And I think it, it shows that, you know, he did his job in his career, right? He hit the home run for the Asheville tourists. As he says, when he comes back to Annie, I hit my dinger and I hung him, hung him up. But he knows that that there's and this is when the Bulls release him, that it's maybe time if he wants to stick around the game to transition to be a manager. And, as you know, there's that job in Visalia, which growing up in, in the Central Valley, I hated because nobody calls it Visalia. It's right, Visalia. Right. right. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, he, he he says to Annie when she says when she looked him up and says the sporting news ought to know about this he says well it's kind of a dubious achievement meaning that you've been in the minor leagues long enough to hold the all-time home run record and he has enough respect i think for the game you know maybe he doesn't want to be known for that necessarily as the guy who never really you know who hung around maybe too long to set that kind of record um that that he doesn't want anyone to know about it so he he hits the home run he says that's enough, and as you say, respects the game enough where he's not going to try to hang around. Um, other than you know, he's going to drive out to Visalia, you know, come come the true off season and, and interview for the manager job. And that's probably if there ever was a Boulderum too. And I think that ship has sailed at this point, And I hope they never make it and turn it into like a Top Gun two where everyone's just hanging on and it's weird. Um, but that's probably where Bull Durham two picks up is. You know, he's the manager of Visalia and yeah. and Andy's with him and then, you know, who, whatever else happens. But yeah, but yeah, he yeah. comes back to her because he also realizes after he's released by the Bulls that that it's not just they have this mutual admiration for each other. There's an actual connection there. Right. And they spend that that whole weekend or those couple days around the house and, you know, uh, with adult activities, but also having conversation. Right. So it's not just physical um and, and kind of being goofy and and he realizes that he loves Annie and that she loves him and that there's more to life than just baseball that he could be a manager and also be happy you know personally with her yeah. too yeah it's a fulfilling and it's almost like an Ibsen or a Chekhov ending where you know the characters kind of know they've come to their end right like he's come to his end in minor league baseball. Now in Ibsen and Chekhov, those characters usually don't end up surviving the end of the of the work. But in this case, he actually has somewhere to go. He can go back to Durham and go back to Annie. And I did read there was a sequel about 20 years ago. There was a sequel 
in 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 the in the works about you know him and Annie being in uh, Vesalia, uh, where he would be a co. I don't know if he was a manager. He might have been a coach. Um, okay. For 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 you know and. Now you worked in the Cal League, and I know you know Steve. Where I've had a lot of friends work in the Cal League, yeah. And so Visalia is a California League team. So now you know being on the West Coast for me and knowing that okay, Visalia Oaks or the Rawhide now they're the Rawhide now. They used to Visalia, be the Oaks, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, so it's a real it's a real minor league team, and knowing a little bit about the Cal League now, it's almost like the West Coast iteration of the Carolina League. You know, the stories you hear from the guys that you and I both know riding right. buses up and down California. But it's, it's the same progression, or at least it was then, not so much anymore now where they're hiring managers with no managerial experience. But, you know, he's viewing it as the same progression to try to get back to the majors, even as a manager. And he says it. Do you think I could get to the show as a manager? And if he goes and starts managing or coaching, you know, the, the same level that he just finished playing in, can he progress through, you know, the, the minor leagues and get back to the show? And that's the whole purpose for him, you know, is to get back one way or another, um, you know, whether it is riding more buses or, or being that coach. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of ties it all together. Um, and I also like, you know, at the, at the end when he sits down on the porch with Annie or she shows up and he's sitting there and she starts, you know, going into one of her diatribes about some book she's read and the, and the beliefs and the laws of relativity or whatever. And he says, Hey, you know, I just want to be, like, I just retired. We have a lot of time now where we can talk about all this stuff. But right now, I just like my career's over. I just need to chill and figure out the next step. So let's just go inside and they turn on music and start dancing. And that's it. Right. And it shows that he's like accepting this. He's happy with it. But he doesn't want to be bogged down with like these deep conversations that she's always willing to have. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, Crash Davis probably is a great character study. Like just you and I are talking about him, like, wow, somebody much smarter than you or I should probably do like a deep, you know, critical studies, character study on. Yeah, Crash I wonder Davis. how many people, like in film school, have written their their master's thesis on on Crash. Because it's it's really it's it, I mean he is an archetype, but there's there there are angles to the archetype, you know, that that are different, obviously unique because of because of the game of baseball, you know. Um, the other interesting thing about this, well, let's look at Ron Shelton. So Ron Shelton had yeah. kind of been a writer for hire coming out of the baseball, and I'd read, I'd read Ron Shelton had a real tough time breaking in to write as a writer. You know, he'd have a couple of scripts that he was circulating, and you know, he would get meetings and whatnot, and nothing really would come of them. And what he started doing was he would just change the title of the same script and keep sending them back out. You know, and ultimately he got he wrote a couple of like nothing. I think he wrote uh, he was a credited writer on the on the Salvador film with James Woods talking about the American journalist that went down there to cover, you know, some of the the death squads down there. So it's kind of a heavy film. But um, this was his first film as writer director. And he kind of became a bit of a brand with regard to sports movies. You know, in addition to this, he did, you know, White Man Can't Jump. He did uh, Tin Cup, you know, very famously. Um, and it kind of, I think, reopened the door to sports movies. There were a lot of sports movies made kind of in the mid to late 80s. You know, Hoosiers jumps out at me. You know, Bull Durham obviously comes to mind. Um, Everybody's All-American with Dennis Quaid came out around the same time. And so Major League. Amazing. Major League, yeah, the Major League. I, I was for sure spurred by Bull Durham. They're probably in development right. currently. Um, I'd heard that one of the choices to play Crash before Kevin Costner was uh, Charlie Sheen. They, or, sorry, uh, to, yeah. to Duke, like, Nuke, Nuke, I'm sorry, Nuke 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 Nuke
right. another baseball move. Yeah, there you um, go. And then also, sales. yeah, they wanted they wanted um, you know that star power you mentioned, right? With with Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, not necessarily, you know, the the headliners. They wanted that star power, and uh, Kurt Russell was also up for the role of Crash Davis. Right. And it's hard to imagine these other actors when you talk about who else was considered after a movie that you love and watch so much, and you just that Kevin Costner is Crash Davis, right? Yes, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Like, like, could you imagine Kurt Russell as it? Yeah, maybe if you watched it for the first time and he was Crash and, you know, he probably has mannerisms a little different. Definitely had the 80s, like, catcher mullet for sure, Kurt Russell did. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's fun. I like reading that stuff, too. But then you can't really imagine, you know, those folks when you see this. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's great to see, like, Ron Shelton's career and... and in the way to tie it back, you know, probably oddly to the movie that he just needed that break. He needed the break into film writing and directing the same way that, you know, a guy needs the break to be on the 25 man roster that, you know, you're a broadcaster. You need, you know, you need the break to, to call certain games or to have the career you've had. Right. You know, people need those breaks in life and, and he got it. Right. And so this was his big break and he did the most with it. And it turned out to be a classic and paved the way for, like you said, White Men Can't Jump and Tin Cup. And, you know, now he's just this successful uh, film writer. We, so a couple of weird stories. So Trey Wilson, who played the manager of the Bulls, I thought he did a great job. He kind of mm-hmm. passed away unexpectedly right after the movie. So, I mean, I mm-hmm. think his career probably would have taken off. Um, the guy, the actor, and I missed, I forget his name now, the actor who played Jose in, in Bull Durham was at the time, I think, either married to or dating Sean Young. So he had oh. met Kevin. Co- he had met Kevin Costner during No Way Out, and in passing, he had mentioned to him, "Hey, there's this baseball movie that I'm doing." And his agent got on the horn and got him the audition to play <laughs> to play Jose alongside Kevin Costner. And the other one I read. So one of the weird things, as you mentioned, Max Patkin already, which I think is great, the clown prince of baseball uh, in in the movie. Um, the other one was one of the Bulls was uh now he's now passed away but vegas entertainer danny gans danny gans exactly right yeah before he was the man of a thousand voices he was the third baseman for the durham bulls and a little another quirk you know you being you haven't gone to santa barbara the central coast and also the big west danny gans played college baseball at cal poly he was the third baseman alongside ozzy smith when ozzy smith was playing uh, up in wow. San Luis Obispo, and he was a big power hitter. I think he had a, a year where he hit 21 home runs. And what? I mean, he was drafted, but an injury. He never. I, I, he might have played in the minors. I think he either was drafted and couldn't play in the minors because of an injury, or played for a couple of years and then got hurt and had to go into show business. So I always yeah, like those little, those little tidbits. I, I love it too, and I'm going to take it one step further. That in the credits, and you only you have to watch all the credits. That like the baseball, I forget the exact name, but like let's say baseball technician or the person that made it look real, the the advisor, Grady Little. That's right. That's right. Because he was the manager of the Durham Bulls. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like every, so, everything comes full circle. Yeah. Yeah. All these little twists and turns of of uh, all these folks. Uh, it's it's kind of crazy. The play-by-play guy they had, you know, in in the uh, in the in the story. Uh, he was actually the play-by-play guy for the Durham Bulls at the time, and one of the coolest scenes is when they're recreating the game when he's using yeah. the, the old the old card and <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the little the, the wooden bat to simulate yeah, the, to uh, crack the, double. The, uh, yeah. the crack of the bat. And the other thing is the public address announcer for the Durham Bulls back in you know this the woman who played the uh, the PA announcer was a woman, which isn't 
particularly common then. Now it's way more common. Right. But back then, the press box was definitely kind of a more male-dominated arena, and it was nice that they got the you know they had her doing the PA for the Durham Bulls. Yeah, I felt the 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 broadcaster doing the road game while the woman was taking notes from the phone was was just another slice of minor league life you'd have no idea about. And yeah. you know, especially of anybody, as a baseball broadcaster, you have so much airtime to fill with stories and you know statistics and whatever else that you know you can't just rely on the game action, right? You have all these little tales. But I think back then, he was just providing information and not filling time in between. So you'd, you'd be like, 2-1 pitch. Ball. Yeah. 3-1 right, pitch. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, like that would be the, probably the, the cadence of this, of this old guy who's just trying to you know, bring Bulls fans the, the updates from the games. And um, it's just funny how things change and, and the little things you had to do or people have to do to, to, to get people their sports fix, yeah. you know. Uh, especially as we're talking in the time of coronavirus to get people their sports. Yeah. Games. What it made me think of is because you were an SID, so you're doing the live stats at courtside, right? And yeah. it was like you have the spotter telling you you're typing. And obviously, you're watching the game, but most most SIDs have a spotter to tell them what's – especially like a game like volleyball or basketball when it's moving really fast – they're telling you what's going on and you're, you know, you're using your eyes, but you're also listening and typing everything as they're telling you what's going on. That's kind of what I thought about and kind of to bring it to the more to the present day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember at, at UC Santa Barbara, we would sit up in the rafters at the Thunderdome. So not courtside, like pretty much every other D1 place. Uh, and, and our spotter wasn't known for his great eyesight sometimes. So, uh, <laughs> I got good enough on the on the system where I was able to kind of track the game on my own and enter and made sure that the stats actually were right that game. Um, they were never off enough where where people would complain, but you know you want it again. You know, going back to to having that high bar, you know, you 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 reach a certain level and, and you want to bring that professionalism, you know, kind of everywhere you go. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the floor for the last the 60 seconds here. Uh, give me your explanation on why is Bull Durham the best baseball movie ever made. So I think the reason it gets, you know, critics love it. I think people that love the game love it. But I think if you gave it to the average sports fan and compared it to like White Men Can't Jump or Major League or, or another or Hoosiers, which is a pure drama, but I'm kind of staying in the comedy realm. They might like those movies better because it's funnier to that to the average sports fan. But the reason why I love Bull Durham so much and why it resonates with people that get it is if you're close enough to the game and even a little bit close enough to the game, there's so much inside knowledge there that doesn't translate to the casual sports fan while also carrying a movie, carrying the career arc and the story arc, uh, the, the, the career arc of Crash Davis and Nuke, and also the love triangle when you add in Annie. And it carries all that and it puts it all together. And it's so quotable and memorable. And I think that the average sports fan just doesn't appreciate it the way someone like you or me or someone that's closer to baseball does um, because it is funny. It's it's not that slapstick major league type of humor. It's the inside knowledge humor of the stuff we've been talking about. You know, the, the chicken bone cross, the notes yeah. in the dugout, the broadcaster, you know, the 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 don't mess with the winning streak. The, the scene we never even talked about of 
creating the rain out because they just needed a day off and they just run the sprinklers at the field all night. You know, right. it's, it's all those little pieces that are funny to the average person, but they're funnier and more appreciated by folks like, you know, that, that understand the game a little bit better and closer to the game. And you put all that together and, and you, you add what people like. They like drama. They like comedy. They like sex and love. Um, and they like sports. And it, it ticks every one of those boxes uh, where a lot, if not 99% of sports movies don't. And that's why I feel Bull Durham's the greatest sports movie ever made. You reminded me of something I had to bring up. The interview scene when he makes to the bigs, when when yeah. Duke is in the bigs. Now, first of all, we're in the fishbone shirt. So so he's wearing band shirts. Yeah. And I always thought about that. I said, you know what? I should just get a couple of nice sports jackets and wear all my music shirts during, during the, the season. I maybe <laughs> Only want to if do you that have the, 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 the Walkman headphones hanging around your neck. like you Right. Can. There you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, you were a reporter, the cliches, you know, and yeah. it's a little bit better now. You know, baseball to me as a kid growing up and my my so my mom, when she came to this country, the first baseball she ever watched was the 69 World Series. And then I had an uncle who was a big fan of the Charlie O, the swing and a 72, 73, 74. And then later, my mom got into the big red machine. Usually the big like she couldn't tell you she couldn't tell you who Mike Trout is. But if you want to talk about Rusty Staub or Joe Morgan's batting stance, we're, <laughs> we're done for a good 45 minutes. Um, so Your mom is uh, a treasure. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like I, I mean, you know, she watched baseball. Like me and my brother watched baseball. She'd kind of sit and watch with us. And so obviously we're not in the house for many years. But I remember when Rusty Staub died, she was very like – I mean – I mean, she was upset. I was gonna say upset. So no, it wasn't a strong word. She was just oh, you know, you know, and she's she's carrying on about this poor rusty stob, you know, who she hadn't maybe talked about in 30 years. Found out that he'd passed away, and was giving me the breakdown on poor rusty stob. Uh, uh, but uh, it's 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 going back to you being a reporter. Baseball used to be about characters. There used to be so many characters in baseball. I remember oh, yeah. the great catfish hunter quote about Reggie Jackson. So he'd give you the shirt off his back, but he'd throw a press conference to, to announce it. You know, like little <laughs> little like whizzy quips like that. Now, you know, you know, you have agents, you have PR people. Everything is really sanitized. And this, you know, kind of was a precursor to that because Crash is told, or sorry, uh, yeah, Crash is telling Nuke, hey, here are your cliches. And he employs them perfectly in the interview. Yeah, all at once, too, which is not what Crash was trying to tell him. So even then, <laughs> Nuke doesn't quite get it. He uses them all in one in one response where you're supposed to space them out, because what are you going to say to the follow up question? You know, right, right, um, right. which which, again, just again, that that little humor that people might not quite get. Like he just he has verbal diarrhea of all the cliche at once. When Crash is telling him, you got to learn your cliches, you got to love them, you know, he didn't he didn't specify, well, you got to intersperse them. So Nuke just used it all at once rather than his first interview. If you remember after his first win, he grabs the reporter's microphone and he's like, yeah, it's wild. It was out there. I mean, like really out there. Like like he has no idea how to how to do an interview. So it's, it's funny to see it come together. But even then, he still doesn't get it. Did you ever have? Is there an interview that jumps out at you that you ever did where like there was kind of a deer in the headlights moment for the player? Uh, I I think it was actually one that I did that might have been the other way around a deer in the headlights moment for me. Um, you know, and and this is in my you know uh, my last year of being a reporter. So I I had been major league reporter for four years, and and before that had covered all kinds of sports and been in 
you know, NFL locker rooms and NBA locker rooms and minor leagues and, you know, high schools and all that, all, all of it. Um, and I'm taught the angels at the time had just a, a hell of a time winning in Fenway park. You know, they just, they just couldn't win. They'd be up like eight, eight to five in the eighth and somehow would lose nine to eight, you know, like every time. And, um, I remember I was talking to Tori Hunter, who was new to the team and not only one of the coolest, like greatest athletes you'll talk to, but, you know, not one that's that's scrubbed by the PR. Like he just says what's on his mind and he doesn't care, which is awesome for a reporter. Um, And I'm talking to Tori about, hey, you know, you haven't been on the team. This is your first year on the team. The Angels have had this trouble. You've played, you know, you've been in the league long enough. Like, what is it about Fenway that that? is hard to win at, you know, and he's, he's given kind of the, Hey, the Red Sox are good, right? This is when they're battling the, you know, they, they just won the world series in 04 and they wanted to know seven. Um, so, you know, we're talking about really good teams here and we start getting deeper into the interview. And then Tori says that the fans are racist and that they call, call out words that should not be repeated. Right. And, and that's where you're the reporter and you're used to the, well, we take it one game at a time and we tip our cap and, you saw that and that's where the deer in the headlights was back on me and and i couldn't believe that i was getting this gold mine of a quote from an african-american man saying the things that he is saying he hears as an outfielder you know at fenway park and took that story and ran with it because you know you have it it's on the record wrote a story and um you know that, that was one of the more impressive, you know, dog days of August stories that I that I ever wrote. Yeah, I, um, I remember that time. It kind of ran off the flagpole a little bit. That that caused it did. A little yeah, bit of it got it got it got picked up around because again, you know, you don't. Th- this is back in 0, 08. Um, so if that story were to run now, it would be all over every blog and Stephen A. Smith and all those shows that didn't quite exist then, right? Um, yeah. You know, it got run up the flagpole. You know, the type the type of stuff it did in 08, but. Um, so deer in the headlights, yeah, the other way around. And then of course, every rookie that comes up, you know, you, you talk to them and they're, they're just happy you're talking to them in a clubhouse full of Garrett Anderson's and John Lackey's and Darren Erstad's, you know what I mean? And that these big league, they're almost deer in the headlights that they're being interviewed by a big league reporter when, you know, I was 25, 26, I, I'm like barely older than they are. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm kind of their age. Um, so it's just, it's funny, but, but yeah, when you say that, that, that story in particular jumps out, it was caught me off guard, but in a, in a way where I was able to, to write a solid story and maybe uncover some things that, that weren't being talked about as much. Matt Hurst joining me to talk about Bull Durham. Sir, I know you have some children to raise and I know you have work to do around the house and thank you for taking some time out on this, on this evening. Before I let you go though, I got to ask you a question. A little birdie told me that you may have signed an autograph or two while you were a big league reporter because you got mistaken for a player. How many, did you really do that? Uh, it happened more than once, to be honest with you. Um, that you just you mentioned that you were, the same age, you were the same age as the player. You just, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, You have some good sources. And then and then one time, which was just really cute. Um, yeah, I, you know, not that I was mistaken, but I, I'd get out of a cab in front of the stadium and younger guy and people would run up. Um, but I was in spring training and I was waiting to talk to who knows, right. Who was waiting to come out of the clubhouse and this mom and her son, and he's probably like six, eight years old and he's got a ball and a pen and he just wants to get a player's autograph and the mom wants to just go. And so they see me and, and she's like, 
he comes up to me. He's like, and I'm in like a t-shirt and flip-flops at spring training. And he asked for my autograph. And I, I'm like, oh, and I start to say I'm not a player. Like, I'm not a big deal. And the mom just wants to go. She goes, can you please, please just sign his ball? He just wants an autograph. Doesn't matter who it is. And so I did. And I hope that he <laughs> went and played in that backyard because that ball is worth, you know, less than nothing with my signature on it. But, but yeah, it, it you know, you're around enough. You, you Sometimes I guess you're, you're when they say it's better to be lucky than good, that would that would be me. Any good Jim Alexander stories you can give me too? <laughs> yeah, but not not when when we're done recording. How about that? Okay, okay, all right. Matt Hurst, <laughs> thank you very much. Bull Durham, great movie. Uh, I think it's on the cable cycle right now, so check it out if you haven't seen it. I'm guessing most people have seen it, but if you haven't, great baseball movie. And uh, Matt, always great to catch up with you, buddy. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a lot of fun.